so first, um, just tell me your name and what you do at Kijabi Hospital. My name is Lynette. I'm a medical officer, general practitioner at Kijabi. I work in the IMED department in general wards. When COVID was here in COVID ward, and now it's rest center and in ICU HDU uni. Why did you end up with adults? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was like, a, like I love internal medicine. Anything to do with internal medicine, I love it. Whether it's an adult or a baby, I just love it. And maybe it's easier because of where I went to school. Where I went to school, there's a lot of lifestyle diseases, less infectious diseases. Mm. So like when you come we to... say lifestyle, what, like, like what do you mean? hypertension, diabetes, things like that, mm. which is most of internal medicine. And so it's not like Kenya where you actually have infectious disease to think about. And I feel like because that was my foundation when I came for an internship, I found this safe place, this comfortable like mm-hmm. place in internal medicine. So it's like, oh, I know that, you know, like it's not new to me because I've seen it. And that just made me love it more and more because I felt like I know that. Yeah. And now I can build on that. I mean, it turns out you don't know anything, but... you don't know what you don't know but like it's it's fun to build on that one and why adult it's like i'm very emotional when it comes to kids my pediatric rotation was full of a lot of tears so i need to like get myself together and (laughs) be a doctor (laughs) and look like like a i don't know like a human like what yeah hardboard or something <laughs> like, like nothing is touching me i'm just okay but yeah Aww. inside i'm all mushy inside so i feel like kids really remove that from me and then adults okay i can cry about this later <laughs> let's deal with it now but then kids is like cry now <laughs> that's yeah. great because you did your you did your internship at kijabi yes yeah. yes um tell us about medical school how, how in the school, world did you go to school where you went to school? I went to school in Russia, the Russian Federation. And <laughs> it was just, um, it was a miracle of sorts. Because I had no idea that I could go to school in Russia. In fact, I didn't even want to be a doctor until my last year of high school when I felt the Lord telling me to be a doctor. And I was really against it for like a month. Like I spent a month arguing with God in my closet. Like, really? Do you really want me to do that? Like, uh, I've never ever wanted to do that. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be, I don't know, a scientist. I want to do research. I want, you know, like I had all these other plans. Anything but medicine. Yeah, anything but medicine. Because I'm like, everyone wants to be a doctor when they grow up. Who's going to take out the trash? You know, like... Who's going to be the mechanic? Who's going to be the engineer? Like, I don't want to be a doctor. Everyone's going to be a doctor. Turns out, not everyone became a doctor. And I became the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, but God has a sense of humor. Because um, the thing that I was fighting so hard not to do turned out to be the thing that I do the easiest. Because I went to med school and it became so easy to learn god make it made it so easy for me to learn the concepts and to understand the concepts and and to understand 
physiology and all the body works and what drug goes with that, you know. So I was like, hey, man, it's good to follow what you feel God is saying to you. And boy, am I glad I did that. And then Russia, like a friend of mine came, visited from Russia. I hadn't seen her for years. She was in second year. She told me Russia's good. She's Kenyan? She is Zambian. Okay. Yeah. At that time, I was living in Botswana. That's where I grew up. Oh. So my Zambian friend comes home for holiday and gets invited coincidentally by another friend to our church. And I'm like, hi, long time. I haven't seen you. It's been like years. Where have you been? She's like, I'm, I've been in Russia. What are you doing? I'm doing medicine. And I'm like, okay. That time I, I hadn't yet agreed with this whole plan to do medicine in my heart. But I was like, this is a good idea to look into Russia as a school option because I definitely didn't want to stay in Botswana to do my university. So I asked her a question. She said the teachers are good. The groups are small when you study so the teachers can follow you very closely. And she said everything except that they don't speak English. <laughs> and I feel like God literally blinded me to that because I asked every question except what language do they speak? I mean, I know there's Russian, but they surely, surely they have to speak English, right? They're white. <laughs> nope, they don't. <laughs> and I found out when I landed in the country... <laughs> So, out of curiosity, I study Russian. I'm so excited. I'm going to Russia. And then I land in Russia and it turns out I have survival skills now. It's not, by the way, I know a little bit of Russian. It's, this is like survival. <laughs> yeah, so I took it positively. I decided, well, I'm here. So I have to keep a positive mind about it and learn it as fast as possible so that life can get easier. And that's what I did. So I learned it and life got really much more easier. And so that was how long? Five years? Six years? Yeah, six years. Six years. Yeah. Wow. So you're from Botswana. How did you get to Kenya? Um, I'm from Kenya. Okay. I was okay. born in Kenya. Okay. My parents are Kenyan. But when I was five, my dad is a civil engineer. So okay. when I was five, my dad applied for a job with the government of Botswana and he got it. So he moved to Botswana to look for greener pastures and then the family followed him. So that's why we all grew up, me and my sisters, except for my youngest sister who was like a bit young when they moved back to Kenya when I was in third year in Russia. So mm. when they moved back, now home became Kenya again. Home was Botswana, and then they moved back, and now home became Kenya. So when I finished with Russia, I came home to Kenya. Yeah, so now I had to learn a new language, Swahili. <laughs> I know how to say hi. <laughs> but everything else is like a blur, because I was five when we left. So I had to learn Swahili all over again. But because I had learned Russian, I was like, there's nothing impossible. Surely, it's just a language. And now I speak it fairly well. I can speak Swahili and no one knows I'm not really Kenyan. But when I speak English, they know. Because <laughs> my accent is not Kenyan. Botswana, that's like the... I, usually the voice actors and people like on TV in America, a pure like classic African accent. Like for, <laughs> really? for how to like speak English. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like Disney movies, it's always a Botswana accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, they try. Yeah. Because I'm just like... 
really? Yeah. yeah, what were challenges? So you came, did you have time off in between in between finishing medical school and starting internship? How did you end up at Kijabi? I had a whole year of nightmares. <laughs> None of my papers were Kenyan. So I went through such a terrible time. I went to try to verify my degree and they said I had to verify my high school certificate. And then when I went to try and verify that, they said I had to verify the primary school certificate. And most of that was like, we need a physical letter from the governing body in Botswana. And I'm like, I have no family there left. There is no one there. How am I going to get like a real letter from them? But thank God for friends. I asked a couple of friends to help me. They sacrificed time from their jobs to help me chase down that. And it took a whole year from the time that I came back to the time that I started internship. And even after doing the whole verification thing, turns out you don't just do internship, you do pre-internship, which is like an internship, but then it doesn't count for four to six months. So I did that, and then you write board exams, so I did that. And then just as I was about to ballot for a government place in the internship whole pool, a cousin of mine asked me, have you tried mission hospitals? Because she had worked for mission hospitals and she feels like they're great. And I was like, "Uh, I've never thought of that. What's that? And she told me the last interview is next week, Monday. Find a way there. So I found a way there. (laughs) Showed up, did the Kijabe interview. In that list, you have to write like three hospitals. I did the Kijabe interview and I fell in love with Kijabe just from talking to the doctors on the panel. And yeah, Dr. Ariana was on that panel that day. So I was was so in love with Kijabe. I was like, I'm done. I'm going to Kijabe. I I didn't even interview the other two places. I'm like, I'm going to Kijabe. I'm not going anywhere else. (laughs) So I went home all happy. I'm like, I'm going to Kijabe. I'm going to Kijabe. And I don't know. That was just, (laughs) I was just so sure. (laughs) Mm. and then later on i found out i am going to kijabe yeah so super happy about that i fell in love with this place before i came here and since i came like i've not been able to leave since you think about going anywhere else and you're like okay so what's life gonna be like there nope i'll stick to this one (laughs) what particularly do you like about it i love the compassion with which people approach medicine. I mean, there's science and there's evidence and there's all that and anyone can get that anywhere. But there's a human touch and aspect that you can't buy anywhere. You can't buy that. And then a lot of these doctors are Christians and missionaries. So they're here not because their homes are not comfortable, their countries are not good. I mean, I've been a foreigner. I know it's home's always best. It's very uncomfortable to be a foreigner sometimes. But they're here because they feel like their call to humanity is higher or greater than their comfort. And I feel like because God told me to be a doctor, it's great to be around people who take it like a calling because I take it like that. So I feel like this is a very good place. It's different like that. And then there's also the evidence-based approach, you know, like it's not quack medicine. (laughs) It's not (laughs) abracadabra. It's 
okay, I read this paper and it says this approach is better for this disease. And that's what we do. We do that because the best idea wins. And the best idea is tested, it's tried through trials and studies, and that idea wins. So every protocol changes according to the idea, the evidence that has come up. And then the system of correction for mistakes Audit is taken very seriously. Audit helps us change protocols, change our approach. And the culture of we said it in audit and it's being done. Like it's one thing to say we'll do and then it's another thing to actually do. And it's a culture that goes on from the highest doctor to the lowest staffer. Even a PA, a a patient assistant adheres to the protocol that's a cultural thing that you can't buy that if people's mentality is for i'm here to get my money and go then they would never they'll never do that but the fact that we say something in a meeting and it actually happens that's wonderful that's awesome your internal medicine what's good about it and what's hard about it what do you love about it and then what's the most challenging um let me start with what's hard What's hard is at least once or twice a week, there's like this one patient who I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. (laughs) And then once in a while, there's this patient who everyone is like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, that's like really, that's mind boggling. But then that's also why it's great because every time you think you know, you don't know. Don't know what you don't know. But then every time you think you know, you find out there's more to learn. So I love that opportunity to grow. Places where I can be put under pressure to grow. And feeling like you don't know, like there's no bigger force or pressure than the feeling of I don't know. (laughs) And then there's this culture of mentorship that Kijabe has. I have awesome seniors who don't make me feel dumb for not knowing so when I don't know, there's always someone a phone call away or like three people, at least three people, a phone call away who might know. And if they don't know, they're so honest. I mean, I love that they're so honest when they don't know. And they're always willing to offer advice on have you tried this and have you tried that and have you checked this and that. And then they teach you how they think so that you can be a proper mentee. So I love that. That's what I love about internal medicine in Kijabe. I don't know about internal medicine in any other place. But like here, it, you're free to be dumb if you're dumb. <laughs> and we'll help you get smart. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Tony was telling me, Tony Wynn is the head of internal medicine right now. And he was telling me that... He's my boss and he's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's great. I think he was talking about ventilated patients, that a lot of your patients are younger. I'll see old folks walking in the door sometimes, but he said a lot of your patients are younger. Why do patients come to you? Where do your patients come from? What are their issues? Well, our vented patients are younger. Hmm. And most of that is because of our resource-limited setting. Because of our resource-limited setting, we can't afford to intubate everyone. So our protocol favors a younger patient with less stuff going on or less chronic disease going on. 
and it's very sad that we have to make that decision but we only have a very small amount of resources and in this case vents so how many do you have that are working right now do you know we have five good vents i think we have two malfunction ones mm. <laughs> yeah but we have five good I think your definition of good is different from mine. <laughs> <laughs> like, it keeps the patient alive. <laughs> that's your definition. That's good enough. <laughs> what, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's the distinction. It's yeah. good enough, and then there's actual yeah. good. Because yeah. you have some. Even when we use those five, like, I have my favorites. That thing is from 1953. Yes. And it's a small and miracle. It's still it's working. <laughs> It's but, still working. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, that makes me very nervous. Yeah, it does. It does. But then we live by faith here. <laughs> We're literally surviving on small miracles. <laughs> so there's two really, really good ones yeah. that have this nice screen. Yeah, they have like the all genie the, ones. Yeah, yeah, they have all the stuff that you can read. And, and then there's these ones which you're like guessing some of the stuff in the background. You're like, I Because it, it's totally manual, right? <laughs> yeah, like you have dials manual. you can adjust, it's but manual. you don't, there's no yeah. waveform. There's no yes. title volume. Yes. Like you're just There's you're just nothing guessing. to see. There's nothing to see. It's just put in the, the settings that you want and hope and pray that that's the right <laughs> and then if that doesn't work you try something else and see if that works and that's how we live imagine <laughs> yeah not that that's not good but that's what i'm hoping we can yeah, improve like on a bad somewhat. day you're just like i have five solid vents that yeah. i think i can think they can save five lives <laughs> And so for those, you're saying you kind of have protocols for younger for younger people. How, how also does the, I don't know if you call it a dance or juggling or, you know, the interactions between different departments work? Because patients are surgical or medical, but there's a lot of overlap. Yeah? Yes, yes. It's a lot of teamwork that's required because a lot of patients in the ICU are surgical, but then if they're in the ICU, they're your patient. They are surgical, but they're still yours. And um, that one needs a lot of communication between us, a lot of understanding, because sometimes we see with our eyes the medical stuff, and they see with their eyes the surgical stuff, and we don't see what they see, and they don't see what we see. So every time we make decisions, it's important to like double back and ask them, okay, we want to do this. Is this going to affect what you're doing in any way? Is this going to harm the patient instead of help the patient? Because sometimes you might do something and maybe cause it's bleeding or, you know, maybe it does something that we didn't intend it to do, but the surgeon would have known that, but we didn't. Yeah, so it takes a lot of teamwork to survive a patient in ICU. And then the elderly patients that we have, we rarely, rarely have room for them. And sometimes when we are admitting patients, sometimes because we feel like this patient might need intubation and we might not be able to give them that resource, we try our best to refer them at the door before they even get to the point of deteriorating and needing the intubation. We just tell them, look, um, it's not looking good. And usually it's the family we're talking to because they're so badly off. And we tell them it's not looking good. It's likely they're going to need intensive care. We don't have room. Please go to another place. And some of them refuse. 
oh gosh some of them refuse and they're like we don't have anywhere else to go so those are tough because they end up staying in casualty forever and then we end up creating an in- intensive care unit in casualty because you can't just watch someone die so that's a hard thing and then some of them die that's the painful part because you're like if we had this they wouldn't have died but we don't so mm-hmm. do you have a sense of what it would take I mean I know I know part of this like we want to get we want to get some new ventilators but I think part of the program for the end of the year is to add 10 maybe more HDU like high yeah. dependency unit beds. Yeah. I don't know what would it take to to treat everybody you think we should be treating. Oh my gosh. A lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of well not in the money sense but like what like yeah how many beds like how many hdu beds how many ward beds what would it take to do like everything you would love to see us doing that would be crazy because if i compare it to other hospitals that are actually achieving that Mm. they can have anywhere from 20 icu beds Mm to 30 to 40 yeah. and we have five so that's like a huge dream for mm. us and then hdu we have 10 you can imagine if they have 20 icu they have double that for mm. hdu and we have only 10 so it's going to take that much more muscle and then the other issue is staffing because we are so few in our department. A lot of our people are missionaries. And um, it's wonderful because they are here to help, but then they can't always be here to help because they have their homes to go back to. So we have a lot of visiting doctors who come in. Oh my gosh, when they come, we're like, oh, we can breathe a little bit, you know? And then we breathe for like a month and then they go and then we're like dying again. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that. We have echoes who, for every ICU week... What does that stand for? It's emergency and critical care clinical officers. So they are clinical officers who have a higher degree in um, critical care and emergencies. They're awesome. They're awesome. They run the ICU very well. It's like a whole ICU really depends on an echo. Like if the echo is good, they respond to the emergency quickly. They call the doctor quickly. A lot of times you get there and they've already intubated. You don't have to intubate. You, they are so good. They respond to emergencies very, very quickly. So um, there's always one, just one in a whole week who does the day and then one in a whole week who does the night and then one in a whole week who does casualty. So if we were to ever expand, I think more beds would be overwhelming for one. And sometimes we have two because there's a one and then a student, but then sometimes that could slow <laughs> the the bigger one down because they're trying to do stuff teaching you know like they're trying to show the other one and we don't always have students yeah. so that would take like more echoes more doctors more critical care nurses who by the way are so awesome yeah there's a lot of training going on this is one of the things I look at I'm like five beds there's the patient side, like there's more people who need help. Mm. 
But then the training side, I'm like, oh my goodness, we have a critical care nursing program. Mm. We have the emergency and critical care clinical officer training program. Yes. And when I just look at it, I'm like, we need to take care of more patients so they can think of an exercise term, just like do more push up. Yes. You know, the more patients they see, yes. like the better they will be yes. coming out of school. Yes. It's much better for the um, And then you're also, I guess you're, you're taking the nurse anesthetists. They yes, come through yes, rotations. Anesthetists, um, higher degree nurses yeah. doing their rotations, and anesthesia residents mm-hmm. and surgical residents. Oh, and surgical. Yes. So that's part of their that's part of their residency the also is to yes. do rotations and that's MO great. Interns. Yeah. So there's and, a yeah. lot of learners. Actually, our ward rounds are like we are more than the patients. By far. By far. That's at least fifty learners in a year. Yeah. At least. Yeah, at least. Wow. There could be more because per week, it's crazy. I could have like, the last time I was there, I had three echo students and three KRNAs and one MO intern and three or two critical care nurses. That's 10 learners. Yeah. And then if you're on the rotation, you have to teach the ICU curriculum for that week. So you have to teach those ones so you're doing that teaching yes yes i teach hey nice i teach and i also well right now i took a break because i've been so busy with my family but i teach physiology in the school oh for the nursing school for the clinical officer for the clinical officer I, i teach human physiology awesome that is a lot yeah it is that's why i like put a pose on it because i'm like oh let me just have a baby first. <laughs> and then I can think about it. <laughs> yeah. Aww, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. How old is your little one? He's turning one this week. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So you're entering a new phase. I guess you're, you're starting to sleep. Yes. And you're also finally. starting to, like, every second there's more trouble you yes, can get into. Yes. I'm battling chronic fatigue. <laughs> we think about like what it would take to build the proper i mean real icu Mm. like we want to that will be phase three of the hospital master plan Mm. um so this year there'll be a new kind of oxygen and facilities plant they're calling an energy center that will go it'll be just outside of the ice or outside of wairagi and so that's part one part two is the new outpatient center and then part three will be where outpatient currently is, they want mm. to build a huge building mm. that will be maternity, internal medicine, mm. um, ICUs. I think it'll take that to get to that 30 level. or 40 beds. Yes. But I'm hopeful that we can figure out how to do something substantially more mm. in the near term. And that's one of the things for me is like, okay, we get equipment, it, it can roll where it needs to go. <laughs> Knocking out walls and things like that are more permanent. But the equipment can follow the need. Yes. If it needs to go to Centennial, it can go to Centennial. I hope we can do a substantial expansion this year because it's, it's important. It needs, yeah. it needs to happen for you guys to be able to do what you're good at. Yeah, and now we have a renal unit. So we have like super sick patients, really sick patients, who we used to refer because we didn't have a renal unit. So you just see like a high creatinine and you're like, okay, bye. Yeah, sorry, we can't take you. You need dialysis and 
we don't have that. But now that we have an actual dialysis center in our hospital, um, we get called more and more into the unit because they code. They code on the dialysis bench and we have to go there and resuscitate. And if we go there and resuscitate, that's an ICU patient. That cannot be anything else. And so if you resuscitate and then you don't have a vent, <laughs> you'll just be bagging and bagging and bagging and you're like, okay, um, I'll be the vent for now, but then how long am I going to do this? Are we going to get an ambulance? Are we going to go to another hospital? Most of them don't have the money to go to a hospital with an ICU. Kijabe is so friendly in terms of ICU on your pockets. So like you tell them about any other hospital and the family is like, no, we can't afford that. Happened in COVID. Told the family that we didn't have room and they started crying. And they were like, where are we going to get the money to do that? Oh my God. The coverage came over, tried to like find a hospital for them. And all these hospitals in Nairobi were asking for extravagant deposits to get the loved ones into like even the normal ward deposit was like so extravagant just knowing that it's covid and the icu was like too much those ones were really hurt by that do you have to save ventilators yeah because you have that dialysis situation do you have to reserve ventilators for surgical patients like if like something bad just yes. came in like yes. they're going to surgery all the time yes every night i'm on call I'm like, how many vents do we have? And the echo tells me we have three vents. And then they're like, surge team called. And they said that they're taking in a complicated case and they want us to save a vent. So if I get any emergencies overnight, okay, let's say I had four vents and I'm saving that one for the surgical patient and I get anything in casualty that needs an intubation, I can't accept. So I have to refer. And that's terrible for those who come crashing because they crash and our reflex is to intubate. We don't even think, we just intubate. And then suddenly somebody's bagging and we're like, we don't have a vent. Sometimes we, we end up having to give away the vent we have reserved as an emergency. And that causes a whole chain reaction of problems because now the surgeon is angry at you because they saved the vent for their patient and they've already cut. And you're like, um, let's pray to God that they come out of anesthesia. <laughs> yeah, it's just a jumble of, it's just a mess. Mm -hmm. They're those nights, they're those bad nights. And then sometimes we have to like quickly extubate someone who we didn't plan to extubate today. Maybe we plan to extubate them tomorrow. And we're like, maybe tomorrow they'll be able to get off the vent. And then we're like, okay, you need to breathe for yourself now. <laughs> and we extubate them because they're like due for extubation later on. But you see, that's a, that's a problem because you're like extubating prematurely. And then you extubate and you're like, fingers crossed, legs crossed. Please breathe. And then they breathe and you're like, thank you. <laughs> So how do you manage that emotionally? It's painful. Sometimes there's moral injury that comes with denying the vent to some patients. Like I'm not 100% sure you wouldn't have made it. Even though I've made that decision that you probably won't make it 
I'm not 100% sure. I'm just basing this decision on be your comorbids or like your other diseases and the fact that you have significant disease and there's this other one with less significant disease that you are likely to not make it. So that's a bit hard. What do you do with that? How do you process it? Well, How do you not explode? Um, our culture in the ICU is when we have like a really tough time, we debrief. We call the chaplain, comes, talks to us. Or the palliative team, they're very good at counseling staff members about like, what are you feeling about this? What are you feeling about having to extubate this one? What are you feeling about having to do this? And everyone like opens up their hearts and says, well, I feel like crap. <laughs> this is terrible. And, um, well, I have a good husband at home, and he's like a doctor now because <laughs> I take all my stories to him. So I go there and I just offload on him. And he's a very good listener. So I feel better because I have that home. Like, I have good support at home. So awesome. it's a tough journey, but um, it's also fun. It's also very fun because it's life-changing. It's the difference between life and death for someone. So our extubation days are really good. Like, yes, we did it. We saved one, 10 million more to go. <laughs> yeah, small wins. Like, always celebrate the small wins. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lynette. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your amazing